0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, complement factor H and response to therapy.
1: You know, what we saw was a difference in treatment response with the CC genotype compared to the others. I think this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. First this.
0: In order to provide medical education free of commercial bias, as seen from here requires a financial interest disclosure before any podcast activity. Dr. Brantley declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. The Open Ophthalmology project at openophthalmology.com is an enormous success with over 5000 users in 57 countries. I have an announcement and a request about this open courseware ophthalmology project. First, I am happy to announce a dramatic improvement in functionality. Beginning this month, new versions of the 20 lecture optics series will be podcast. When you launch any of these new podcasts in iTunes, you'll see the word chapters appear on the menu bar. Each of the lectures has been divided by subtopic and you can navigate directly to the subtopic of your choice by clicking on the chapters menu item. If you are viewing the lectures on a computer, an iPhone, or an iPod Touch, you'll also see an improvement in video resolution, just in time for the OCAPS or the boards. I have a request. I want to solicit lectures for the Open Ophthalmology Project. Perhaps you have a lecture you would like to distribute to our large viewer base. Just email me at jyoungmd at gmail.com. I'll be happy to have you on board, and so will ophthalmology residents from Dublin to Dubai. Come check it out at openophthalmology.com. The discovery of the association of mutations in the gene for complement factor H and the subsequent development of AMD is a signal event in modern ophthalmology. Up until now age-related macular degeneration, was defined by a set of signs and symptoms, now we can begin to understand pathogenesis on the molecular level. But whenever the issue of genetic testing comes up, the same question is raised. How does my patient benefit from knowing that she has the common complement factor H allele or a high-risk mutant? Why should we ask about risks that are ultimately non-modifiable? Okay, we can't change our patient's genomes, that's true, but what if AMD, which arises in a patient with a high-risk genotype, responds differently to specific therapies? Now genetic testing becomes relevant at the level of the individual patient. Milam Brantley of the Barnes Retina Institute at Washington University spoke to us about Complement Factor H in September. I'm delighted to have him back today to speak about complement factor H variants and response to anti-VEGF therapy. Milam, welcome back to A Scene From Here. Let me get you to recap the factor H story. What is complement factor H, what are its variants, and what is its role in AMD?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, we have to, to think about what the complement system is in general. And as you know, that's a uh, it's an important part a strategic component of innate immunity against microbial infection. And it contains several proteins that are organized in three different pathways the, the classical, the lectin, and the alternative pathways. And activation of each of these results in the formation of what are called convertases, which eventually form the membrane attack complex, or MAC. And this leads to complement mediated cell lysis. And this is how many cells uh, control uh, microbial infection it certainly has to be a very sensitive system. And so that's controlled by a whole host of regulatory proteins. And many of these are encoded by genes that are in the RCA, or Regulator of Complement Activation Gene Cluster. And that's located on chromosome 1Q32. And Complement factor H, or factor H, or CFH, is a plasma protein encoded by one of these genes. And it is the primary regulator of the alternative pathway. And you know, basically, it's, it's a 155-kilodalton you know, protein produced mostly in the liver. Um, it has a series of what are called short consensus repeats. It has 20 of them, and they factor in its, its structure, and they have multiple binding sites. It performs three primary functions, and all of these negatively regulate the alternative complement pathway. It, it first competes with complement activator factor B, and it competes for binding for one of the uh, the convertases C3b, and slows that down. Secondly, it accelerates the decay of one of the convertases uh, C3bBb, and, and lastly, it acts as a cofactor in uh, an inactivation of one of the, the of C3b uh, that's accomplished by Factor I. So it does all three of those things in an effort to regulate complement. Um, So what does any of this have to do with AMD? Various components of the complement cascade have been identified in Drusen of patients with AMD, and and this led to the hypothesis that AMD might result from abnormal inflammatory processes, including inappropriate complement activation. It's been thought for, for quite some time that immune mechanisms Cellular interactions in AMD could be similar to those seen in other diseases that display an accumulation of deposits, particularly extracellularly like atherosclerosis or um, Alzheimer's. And this this proposed relationship between inflammation and AMD was really solidified um, almost three years ago now in 2005 when four research groups identified a specific variation known as Y402H in the CFH gene to be strongly associated with AMD. And in these original studies, uh, one copy of the variation resulted in a two- to three-fold increase of uh, likelihood, increased risk for having AMD, while two copies of the variation increased the likelihood of having AMD six- to seven-fold. And uh, and since then, multiple studies have confirmed the association of this Y402H variant with AMD in various populations throughout the world.
0: Now, just so that we can keep the terminology straight, with the Y402H variants, the normal allele is the T allele. Uh, So TT would be the normal genotype, C is the abnormal, the uh, variant allele. Uh, So the other combinations are TC and CC. Correct. Now, what is A69S?
1: Well, A69S is another polymorphism or variant, genetic variant, on a completely different gene. And this is the gene LOC387715, or LOC, and it's on chromosome 10q26. And this is really the second chromosome locus that was found to be associated with the presence of AMD and this was found after CFH and in a couple of studies uh, a, a variant there in that gene was found to confer an increased risk for AMD as well and these, these, this risk was found to be independent of that conferred by CFH.
0: The Y402H and A69S variants are are both SNPs, right? Right. Now, what is a SNP?
1: So a SNP, that's S-N-T, and it stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. And what that is is a DNA sequence variation that occurs when one single nucleotide, your A, T, C, or G, in the genome sequence is altered. For instance... A SNP might change the sequence from, I don't know, say ACGGC to ATGGC. And in that case, we would say that there are two different alleles, the C allele and the T allele. And that's the same thing for the uh, CFH polymorphism or SNP, where we talked about the T allele being the more common, and the C allele being the so-called variant. Now almost all common SNPs really only have the two alleles and traditionally for a variant to be considered an allele it had to be present in greater than one percent of the population. Um, SNPs can be found in regions of DNA that code for genes or also they can be in non-coding regions, promoter regions, um, other areas of DNA that can also play a role. Now. A SNP may or may not change the amino acid that ends up being at that, the position in the protein, and a SNP in which both forms lead to the same amino acid in other words, it doesn't change that 's called a synonymous SNP. Um, but if it changes the polypeptide or the amino acid sequence that's called non-synonymous. And you know 99 percent va- you know, plus of human sequences, DNA sequences are same are the same across the population, but it's these these very rare variations in DNA sequence that could potentially have an impact on how humans respond to uh, disease, to microbes, to even drugs or other therapies. And that's what makes SNPs valuable for research and maybe even for developing uh, pharmaceutical products or, or doing diagnostic studies. They're very, they're very helpful for doing case control studies like, like we're talking about here.
0: Let's start with the Y402H variant. What is the T to C substitution, and what does it do?
1: So what that means is that at the nucleotide position 1277 in, in the CFH gene, where most people have a T thymine, some people have a C, cytosine. And this nucleotide change actually does lead to an amino acid change in the protein at amino acid 402, making this one of those non synonymous SNPs. So, where normally most people have a tyrosine, and that's signified by the Y in Y402H, now there's a histidine there, that's the H. So, it's called Y402H, meaning when you have that variant, the C. I'm sorry, the T to C change, you have a Y to H change at amino acid position 402. Now, it's currently being studied how this amino acid change might change things for the protein in its normal function, but I don't think we really know yet.
0: There are three allele combinations, three genotypes, TT, TC, and CC. What are their respective phenotypes?
1: Well, to be honest, we, we don't really know yet. Um, there have been a few papers linking the respective genotypes with specific AMD phenotypic characteristics, but we really don't know yet if these associations are going to hold up. For instance, in our American Journal of Ophthalmology paper that, that we discussed in the, the previous podcast, our group found that the CFHCC genotype, that is both variant alleles, was associated with a specific type of choroidal neovascular complex. Uh, in wet macular degeneration called predominantly classic lesion. The, this is a characteristic on fluorescein angiography in where there's an early defined hyperfluorescence on the angiogram that increases over time. So the lesion is basically well-defined and it's typically more of a more aggressive lesion than the alternative, which is an occult lesion or one that's more difficult to find on the angiogram. But in this most recent paper in ophthalmology, where we looked at a smaller number of patients with neovascular AMD, we didn't see that association between the CC genotype and predominantly classic membranes. Now, maybe this was due to looking at a smaller number of patients, but it still makes us think that we need to see ours and other studies to see if these relationships hold up over time. And in terms of the CFH molecule itself, changing the amino acid. At position 402 from a tyrosine to a histidine, it could affect the protein's interactions with other molecules or its ability to be cleared from drusen and the retinal pigment epithelium, but but we don't really know yet.
0: The Japanese population is atypical in their phenotypic expression.
1: There's a couple of things that are interesting here. You mentioned the phenotype, and you know my understanding is that AMD does look somewhat differently, look different in Japan with with less, you see less of the slow progression from small drusen to uh, a large drusen to exudative AMD that we see in the United States or or in Western Europe. Um, For example, in, in Japan, soft drusen are only a mild risk indicator for developing wet AMD, whether it's a major risk factor in Caucasian populations. Uh, alternatively, I, I think uh, in Japan, a, a serous pigment epithelial detachment, or PED, is a very common and a, a high-risk indicator for, for developing CNV. Now, you mentioned the, the phenotype, but also I think it's very interesting that the genotype, at least in terms of the cfhy y 402 h is different. It has not been shown to be associated with AMD in the Japanese population at all. Uh, the frequency of the C allele there is very low in the population with really no difference between people with and without AMD as opposed to the Caucasian population. Similar to U.S. and Western European populations, there have been other CFH haplotypes that have been linked to AMD but not the major player Y402H that gets most of the press.
0: What is the A69S variant?
1: So the A69S, as I mentioned, was is part of, of another gene, the LOC387715 or, or LOC gene found on chromosome 10q26. And this was the second, the second major locus that was found to be associated with AMD after CFH. And uh, in this region, an, another SNP was found, this time within this gene. And it's, it's basically a hypothetical gene because the protein product has not been well-defined. So the gene, it's small, it's two exons, it theoretically transcribes, well, it does transcribe uh, about an 818 base pair mRNA and a a small 107 amino acid protein. Um, It's thought to be primate specific. It's been found in placenta and retina, and it's actually recently been renamed ARMS2, ARMS2, for age-related maculopathy susceptibility gene 2. Now, when, they, when this was discovered, the first, first screen found this to, to confer about a 7.5-fold increased risk for developing AMD. So immediately it was looked at to determine whether this was independent of CFH uh, or related to, and it, and it seems to be that the, the risk provided by this A69S um, the variant in LOC is independent of the cfhy 402 h risk, and the A69S simply refers to an alanine to serine change at amino acid position 69, uh, and that's what's predicted by the SNP.
0: What is the HTRA1?
1: So HTRA1 is also on chromosome 10q26, really, really close to LOC. It's actually about five kilobases. Away from the lock SNP and hTRA1 is a member of uh, mammalian hTRAs, stands for high temperature requirement factor A, and this is a serine protease family um, that has a high level of expression expression in placenta. So when this, this study first came out, most of you know, the very few articles that had been published had all been, had all been about uh, expression in the placenta, um, but it's also been found in retina, and it it appears to regulate degradation of certain extracellular matrix proteins. And specifically, it's been shown to inhibit TGF-beta, a known inducer of vascular endothelial growth factor expression, which is, of course, related to the angiogenesis in neovascular AMD. So all this suggests a potential role for this HTRA1 protein in neovascularization. Um, the original study there was looking at the, the lock SNP and came up with this SNP in the promoter region of HTRA1, and they found in that study that it was more closely associated with the presence of AMD. Now, several studies have come out since then, and about half seem to be on the side of lock being more related to AMD, and half about... Uh, on the side of HTRA1, and so there's some some mild controversy there, but I, I think biochemical data is still in the process of being gathered to see if either of these is causally related to macular degeneration.
0: Milam, your study investigated the efficacy of bevacizumab in the context of complement factor H variants. Were there reasons to believe that bevacizumab would act differently in patients with different complement factor H variants?
1: Well, that, that's a great question. Um, there were a few suggestions, some, some reasons. First, there's, there's precedence for such relationships um, as in response to therapies for breast cancer. There are many screening programs these days that will... Um, they're even beginning to tailor breast cancer treatment based on specific genotypes. And, and secondly, in our original study, kind of as a sub-analysis, we had looked at patients that had been treated for exudative AMD with photodynamic therapy or PDT, and there seemed to be a difference in their response to PDT based on their CFH genotype. And we thought if there, if there was a bit of one there, then it would make even more sense or, or at least be the possibility of being a chance for there to be a relationship between treatment response and genotype for CFH because of the relationship between neovascularization and VEGF and inflammation. Um, we thought that there could be a, a difference in response to anti-VEGF therapy and, and interestingly we found one.
0: Milam, can I get you to describe the design of your
1: study? Sure. This was a retrospective cohort study uh, in which we we enrolled patients from the clinical offices of the Barnes Retina Institute, where I see patients. uh, And these patients all had a diagnosis of exudative AMD. And all of them were undergoing treatment for an active choroidal neovascular lesion with intravitreal bevacizumab only eyes that had received no previous therapeutic intervention for AMD were enrolled in the study. And no patient enrolled could have received any anti-VEGF therapy in either eye previously. So we enrolled 86 Caucasian patients and collected mouthwash samples for genotyping. And through the course of, again, this is retrospective, but each patient, uh, received intravetrial injection of 1.2 milligrams of bevacizumab or Avastin uh, at the initial presentation of an active choroidal neovascular complex. And then subsequent injections were performed at six weeks intervals uh, until there was no longer evidence of active neovascularization either on fluorescein angiogram or uh, OCT. And each patient was followed for a minimum of six months for inclusion in the study. And as part of their general medical care, all the AMD phenotypes were characterized by clinical examination with fundus exam and photography and fluorescein angiography. And then we went back and um, two different graders uh, individually graded the fluorescein angiograms while masked to genotype, um, the angiograms that were obtained on the initial presentation of an active choroidal neovascular lesion. And then... And Snell and visual acuity had been recorded in a standardized manner for all patients um, throughout the study. And for all calculations and comparisons, we just switched that over to Logmar and then switched them back to Snell and to report the results. Would
0: you describe the mouthwash sampling?
1: Sure. We were actually very pleased with how our success rate for asking people to participate in the study and their being willing to do so uh, was very, very high. And a lot of this was because we made it easy. And it's very simple to give a mouthwash sample. Nobody has to worry about um, a blood draw. Um, So after uh, getting their informed consent, we just handed them a travel sized bottle of Scope mouthwash. It's got to be the original Scope. And we asked them to to use about half of it and then rinse very, very vigorously for 30 seconds. We timed them. And then they spit this into a, a small collecting tube which we then took to the lab and made DNA from the buccal cells that got washed off during the rinsing. And we used a, a standard lab DNA prep kit to do this, and we genotyped the DNA for the CFH and the lock polymorphisms with a PCR-based restriction polymorphism analysis. So basically, we, we amplified the DNA and then digested it with specific restriction enzymes, one that would cut and leave a certain size uh, fragment if the T allele were present, and a different size fragment if the C allele were present. And then we ran these out in a gel, and by looking and seeing how large the fragments were, we could easily genotype the patients.
0: Milam, what were your
1: findings? Sure. So for the the 402 h polymorphism, we found that patients with the cfh genotype, that's no... Risk allele actually had the largest choroidal neovascular lesions, and this was significant. With treatment, the visual acuity improved from 20 over 248 to 20 over 166 for the CFHTT genotype, and from 20 over 206 to 20 over 170 for the TT genotype. However, visual acuity actually fell from 2206 to 2341 for the CFH-CC genotype, those with two copies of the risk allele. And this difference in response was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.016. And it turns out that only 10.5% of the patients with the cfh genotype demonstrated improved visual acuity with treatment compared to almost 54% of the remainder of patients. And that also was significant. We also looked at the the LOC387715A69S variant, and we found that patients with the TT genotype, now this time this is those with both risk alleles, had the largest choroidal neovascular complex. Um, But we found no significant difference in response to bevacizumab treatment according to the the LOC genotype. There was no difference there.
0: To reinforce this point, the A69S variant is not a complement factor H variant. It's a different protein.
1: Right, right. And that that's part of the LOC387715. That's a SNP found within that gene.
0: I'm going to ask you something difficult now. Within the Y402H variant groups, that's the TT, the TC, the CC, does the difference in response to anti-VEGF therapy reflect a different neovascular pathogenesis in the different genotype groups?
1: That's a great question. And you know, what we saw was a difference in treatment response with the CC genotype compared to the others. But we don't know the relationship yet. I think this is kind of the tip of the iceberg in the, you know, a first small pilot study, but it's very suggestive and it's very interesting. The fact that the post-bevacizumab uh, visual acuity was worse with the CC genotype than for the others suggests that it could be that genetic factors play a critical role in the efficacy of therapeutic I- interventions for wet AMD. So one possibility is that patients with this CFHCC genotype have some changes in their local inflammatory mediators due to the presence of a variant CFH protein and that it might take additional or more frequent bevacizumab therapy to achieve any type of visual acuity improvement or it could be completely opposite. It could be that Bevacizumab just isn't as effective in patients with the CFHCC genotype and a more intensive, in treatment, a more intensive treatment wouldn't be beneficial at all. So I think it would really take a prospective study evaluating responses to standardized treatment regimens according to genotype that would help distinguish these possibilities.
0: Milam, how common are the T and the C alleles?
1: So the T allele remembers the normal allele. And let's talk about the the frequency of the the variant, the C allele. In our first case control study, we looked at patients with and without AMD, uh, about 190 of each. And the overall frequency of the C allele was 34% in people without AMD and 55% in people with AMD. And that is very much in line with all the other case control studies. In this ophthalmology paper, we looked at only people with AMD, of course. And again, the allele frequency turned out to be exactly 55%. Now, like we discussed, this is very different from, say, the Japanese population, where the C allele frequency is about 4 to 6% in both people with and without AMD.
0: Now, getting to the crux of what a clinician might want to know, should we be tailoring therapy based on genotype, let's say, to move more quickly to bevacizumab in the TT patients or less quickly in the CC patients? And on that same note, should we genotype all of our AMD patients?
1: Well, that's the obvious. That's the big question, isn't it? So my answer is maybe someday. We certainly don't have enough data right now to change our treatment practice. I mean, I haven't changed mine based on this data. But the more data we get, the better. And you know, I would love to be able to have a situation here where we genotype every AMD patient coming through the door. We're not there yet, but I think that would add a lot to the scientific information that we can come up with this, at this time. It, this is a very dynamic time in the treatment of exudative AMD. We now have a treatment that works pretty well with ranibizumab and bevacizumab, Um, but there still remain a lot of questions. Which is the best to use? Which is the best for different practices to use? What is the appropriate frequency of dosing? Uh, As you know, in the clinical trials that were done uh, that led to the FDA approval of Ranibizumab for intravitreal injection to treat exudative AMD, those were all based on monthly injections for one to two years it's very difficult to set up a schedule in a clinical practice to uh, do monthly injections. And I think right now, there's a very wide range of approaches from clinicians as to how to effectively use ranibizumab or bevacizumab and which to use. So this is, this is a great time to gather more information. So the, hopefully the CAT study, C-A-T-T, for comparison of age-related macular degeneration treatment trial, will answer some of these questions. It's uh, just starting uh, this month. Uh, It's an NEI sponsored trial and there are going to be four arms to it. Uh, Two will use ranibizumab and two will use bevacizumab. And for each of the uh, arms, there will be 300 patients. So for the ranibizumab folks, uh, half of them, 300, will be treated monthly. And the, the other 300 will be treated on sort of a PRN basis, treat when there's leakage based on OCT, and stop when there's not leakage. And then there'll be two uh, bevacizumab arms uh, that are very similar. Now, if these patients can be genotyped, then we've got that prospective trial with standardized dosing that really helps answer these questions.
0: Milam, do you know if there is a commercial assay that's available uh, for mouthwash sampling to determine in our AMD patients, their Y402H, their complement factor H, uh, allele subtypes?
1: You know, I really don't know if there's something commercially available. Um, There are a myriad of commercially available genetic tests. The tricky part is that you got to know what to do with the information. Um, You know, patients, when they have their, their genotypes done, immediately want to know what the answer is. And you have to impress upon them, and it's difficult to do, that this is a population-based study right now. And we're trying to get an idea of how people in different genotypes respond or what their phenotype is. And if I'm genotyping a patient with macular degeneration and I say, your genotype is CC or TT, it's not very meaningful to that person at this time. But once we've got enough scientific data, clinical studies data, then it may mean something. And what you really want it to do is mean something to the son or daughter of the AMD patient who can say, I'm more susceptible or less susceptible to get AMD. Again, you, you're going to have to go back to what's that really going to mean to them. You know, will that really make them stop smoking or will it make them change their dietary habits or maybe at that time we'll have more d- information from AREDs 2 and know more about lutein and zeaxanthin as well as, as the, the studies from AREDs one that's, that's the trick to a lot of genetic testing is knowing what to do with the information once you get it. So, you know, it's very, it's very tempting to say, oh, you know, I want to know what my uh, CFH status is. But right now, it doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. Hopefully, in a short period of time, it'll mean a lot.
0: Milam Brantley, thank you so much.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Take care, Josh.
0: Milam Brantley Jr. is assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the Barnes Retina Institute of the University of Washington in St. Louis, Missouri. His paper, Association of Complement Factor H and LOC 387715 Genotypes with Response to Exudative age-related macular degeneration to intravitreal bevacizumab appears in the December 2007 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Brantley or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines, in the United States dial, area code 646 808 In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275. Or Skype, jayoungmd. Those numbers can be found on our website, as seenfromhere.com As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.